Romans chapter 11. We're going to continue our study through this amazing book. Uh, if you need a Bible, uh, you can use one of the black pew Bibles in front of you. Open up to page 890. 890, Romans chapter 11. In the introduction to our study of the book of Romans, which was basically almost a year ago, back in February, I said this book, this amazing book, has a little bit of something for everyone. Doctrine, application, moral complexities, philosophical complexities. And if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you can probably guess that we're probably neck deep into the philosophical complexities part of the book, right? Going through Romans chapter 9, 10, and today 11, uh, we are wrestling with some really heady stuff, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. And, and as I've been saying, while the presenting problem or the presenting context to us is, is really very distant from us in that the question was, the, the, why did the nation of Israel reject the gospel? The underlying questions are as practical as they can come, right? How can people be in unbelief when the gospel evidences are so clear? How do I relate with God or make sense of God when life does not turn out the way I anticipated? Does God ever abandon us or give up on us? But now, if you're the kind of person that reads ahead, and by the way, that's a good thing to do to prepare yourself uh, to get the most out of, especially the sermon time, every Sunday, if you look in the battle of your service guide, we print next week's text. So the idea being that you can at least once time during the week read ahead and come prepared with questions or thoughts. Now, if you did that this past week and you saw, okay, it's Romans 11 and you read Romans 11, you might have been tempted to say like, ah, another week of Israel. Can we just jump to the real practical stuff that starts in chapter 12, right? Because I get it. You read Romans 11, and Paul's talking about Elijah the prophet, something about branches and olive trees, the Jews and Gentiles and Israel's future. And you might be tempted to think, can we just once have a nice three-point sermon on like communication or parenting or God's plan to get me a wife or something that I can use in my life? Why talking about Israel again? And I get it. But I find that oftentimes, and maybe this is true for you as well, that's how the Bible tends to work. On the surface, it might seem as if it has very little application to us in modern society. But when you actually give it some thought, you, it turns out to be very relevant to us in so many ways. So before we begin our study... Let me give you three reasons to care about Romans chapter 11, right? Then what I'm going to do is give you the structure of the chapter and talk about how we're going to jump into it, and then we'll actually jump into the text itself. So three reasons to care about Romans chapter 11. Number one, practically, we should care about the salvation of all people, including the Jews, because while the, psychologic, while the, the psychological details of us are the same, People are people after all. Even though you might read this and you say, there's very little in connection that I have, 21st century American, 1st century Jew. There's very little connection points until you realize the human heart is the human heart. We all have the same hopes, fears, aspirations, and questions. So we ought to be concerned about the salvation of all people, particularly the Jews, because in the psychological details, we are the same. But we should also be concerned because in the historical theological details were very different. And it's actually in the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles that we see God's unique plan of salvation being unveiled in a pretty amazing way. So that's reason number one. Practically speaking, we should, be care, we should care about Romans 11 because it talks about that. Reason number two, pastorally. 
we ought to care about the interactions of a holy God with his creation. If you've ever felt like you've blown it and that God is done with you and there's no way back to God, then Romans 11 will be a comfort to you. If you savor the gospel and love making much of Jesus, you're lucky enough to be in that position, then Romans 11 will be an encouragement to you. If on the other hand, maybe you find that you've become a little bit apathetic and you've taken for granted Christianity maybe more than you should, Romans 11 might serve as a warning to you. So just practically speaking, we should be concerned about the salvation of the Jews because we are part of the human race. We're alike and different in many ways. Pastorally speaking, wherever you are on the spectrum, Romans 11 has something to say to you. And finally, devotionally, Romans 11 will fuel your worship of God. Because what we see is his, his sovereignty, his mercy, his, his severity, his kindness, all on full display in this one chapter. And so when we contemplate his work in the past, we think about his plans for the future, it encourages us and emboldens us in the present. So those are three reasons we should care about Romans chapter 11. And the reason I even bother to bring that up is because I literally have known somebody who at a pastor's conference, they were talking and they found out that we're going through Romans, they're going through Romans, and the pastor said, when I got to chapter 11, man, I just skipped right over that and went into 12. <laughs> now, I think that's a problem because there's so much rich things in here, but granted, this is uh, pretty thick. If you've read Romans 11, you know what I'm talking about. So let me talk to you now about the structure of this chapter and how we're going to make our way through it. If you were here last week, you recall chapter 10 ends with God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Basically, in verse 21, it ends by, by God saying this, All day long I hold out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And the, by holding out hands, you recall from the context, holding out in, in a sense of pleading, won't you accept what I'm trying to tell you? That, that's the image here. And yet, Israel rejected God, even though God was pleading with them to believe and accept. And so the natural question as we get into chapter 11 is, well, if Israel has rejected God, then has God then in turn reject Israel? To which quickly Paul answers, no. But Israel did drop the ball, right? They have stumbled as God's chosen people. So the second question, which is in verse 11, which our, our chapter is divided nicely by those two questions. Question number one comes in at verse 1, and then question number 2 comes in at verse 11. So the second question is then, then did Israel, is there stumbling beyond recovery? Is there any hope for them? So it's a natural question, right? And, and, and Paul quickly again answers, no, their stumbling is not beyond recovery. There is, in fact, hope for Israel. And through this whole chapter, Paul is unveiling evermore God's amazing, although honestly still mysterious, plan of salvation. You're not going to leave this mini-series in Romans understanding how God's sovereignty and human responsibility works itself out. Trust me. Theologians and philosophers have been wrestling that for millennia. Let's have the humility to just give up on that, saying we're not going to figure it out. But that doesn't mean there's not things we can't walk away from this text with, right? And that's what we're going to do this morning. So this is kind of how it looks. If you just look at the grammar and the questions, question number one is at verse one. And the question is, has God rejected his people? Question number two starts at verse 11. And is Israel beyond hope? 
Those are the two questions that drive this chapter. In answering those two questions, however, we're going to learn three things. Number one, we're going to learn about the remnant of God's salvation. That's in the first 10 verses. And then, this may seem a little bit odd, but the ricochet of God's salvation in verses 11 through 24. And then finally, the rally of God's salvation in verses 25 to 32. So, let's address the first question and learn a little bit about the remnant of God's salvation. Romans chapter 11, maybe, let me take it up in uh, verse 1. Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Okay, stop right there. Um, no, we're, I'm not going to do that after every verse or phrase. We're not, we're not going to get to the passage. But this is an important question, isn't it? Has God rejected his people? And the reason I pause to stop and ask this question is because, hey, number one, I think, I think many of us probably do wonder, hey, have I been shelved? I've thought that in my early 20s. Have I just screwed up so bad God is just done with me? I've been shelved. He'll find someone else. And so asking this question as God rejects us is very important because if God can reject his own people, then it stands the reason he can reject you, right? I mean, if God can kick Abraham's kids to the curb, well, then he certainly can kick your kids to the curb. And so wanting to know this is very important. Thankfully, Paul answers quickly and emphatically, by no means. There are fewer, stronger ways to say no in the New Testament. And then he follows it up with four evidences, four proofs that God does not reject his people. The first one's personal. Uh, the second one's theological. The third one's historical. And the fourth one's I guess, a contemporary, for lack of a better way to put it. Well, we'll see that as we read it. So let's go back to the text. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So there's the personal. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There's the theological. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Here's the, theolo or, excuse me, here's the, the historical. How he appeals to God against Israel. In verse 3, now Paul's quoting Elijah. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee, the knee to Baal. So too, and here's the contemporary, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So we see, that. let's look at those four proofs because they're important. Can God reject us? Can God reject his people? Paul says emphatically, no chance. I'm evidence of this. He starts with the personal example. Now, some of you may know Paul, right? You know his story. Some of you may not be familiar with him. Before Paul became Paul, he was Saul, the most unlikely candidate of somebody who would believe in the Messiah. As a matter of fact, uh, 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, I was the worst, he puts it in the positive, I was the chief sinner. He, I was the best sinner there was. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, I persecuted the church. And then if you look in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it, it explains what that looked like. He would literally go town to town and arrest men and women and have them dragged to prison. He would stand approvingly as Christians would get slaughtered. And yet here he was now, proclaiming the very gospel he sought to snuff out. 
And if you read those passages, he says, I was the recipient of mercy, right? He says, it was by the grace of God that I believe. So in answer to the question, will God reject his people? Paul says, categorically, that wouldn't happen because I'm living proof God does not reject us. And if God would accept me, someone who stood against him and his people, attacking his bride, and man, think about that. If somebody gets into your bride's face, you, you're going to get in their face. But Paul says, even I came against his bride. He was gracious and kind and, and brought me in. So that's the first personal evidence that God would not reject us. Secondly, he gives the uh, theological proof. Look at the verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, that word should sound familiar because we heard it. If you ch go to chapter 8, look at chapter 8, one page to the left. Chapter 8, verse 29, you remember this was a, we called this the triumph of the gospel. It's the crescendo of the first half of the book of Romans. And what this, what this is what Paul says in verse 29 of chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Powerful. Go back to chapter 11. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So some people think foreknowledge, foreknowing, just, just happens to mean that he knows some facts beforehand. That's not the idea. Every time this word is used, it's this idea of intimate relationship. So he foreknew these people. And Paul says he's, he brings them to, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So the first evidence is a personal reality, a biographical evidence. The second is theological, based on this theological system of God's election and predestination. Don't worry, the wheels are not going to come off, he says. And then he gives a historical evidence right there in uh, still verse 2. He's quoting from Elijah, the story of Elijah. If you're not familiar, uh, 1 Kings chapter 18 Elijah is the lone, or at least he thinks he's the lone prophet of God, standing up against all the prophets of the all, and has the kind of a prophetic showdown. Some of you are familiar with the story. And he wins. And so he's victorious. So he stands against all the prophets of the all. He wins the competition. Then the queen wants to have him killed. And then he, in chapter 19, he runs away and hides. I love the realism of the Bible, right? Total victorious, woohoo! And then he's running for his life, and he's crying out to God, why? I have been faithful to you, and I'm the only one left. I, I don't want to say that uh, Elijah was feeling sorry for himself, because that was a very traumatic experience, and it, from his perspective, it seemed that way. But what does God say? No, you're not. As a matter of fact, and notice the, the, who's doing the action of the verb, the Lord says, I have preserved for myself 7,000 other men who will not bow the knee to the all. Will God reject his people? No, Paul says. I'm evidence of that. We have the theological proof of that. And even in our history, God says it, I'm saving people. You may not see it, but I'm doing it. And then fourth and finally, I look at verse 5. So we have a personal proof, a theological proof, a historical proof, and then the, um, I guess a current proof, verse 5. So too, Paul says, at the present time, right now, there is a remnant chosen by God grace. And so Paul marshals this argument for evidences in response that God will not reject his people. And in verse 7, the first part of it, it says, well, what, what then? What shall we make of these things? How do, what do we clue, conclude? What do we draw from this? And, and, and here's, I was talking with the elders this morning. Um, 
There's like theological ways to take the passage, but there's a pastoral way to take the passage. So I want to take it the more pastoral way. And if I flub up, I apologize, partly because you ever have the experience where you're trying to sing a particular tune and everyone around you is singing the other tune and you're, like, you're, you're trying to sing your song, but they're singing this and you get all kind of tense. So this is, this is my dilemma right now. So here's the conclusion of what we've just heard. That even though all evidence to the contrary, God's promises and his purposes for his people will always come to pass. Is the conclusion that we want to draw from these evidences that Paul just marshaled. At the end of the day, God's glory and name are on the line when he's working in our lives. And he will not fail that because he will not let his glory and name be besmirched. And we saw that clearly in Romans chapter 9 when Paul was talking about the, the kind of conflict between Moses and Pharaoh. God's glory was more important than anything. And that's the reason he even raised up Pharaoh was so that his glory might be demonstrated. Here's the pastoral aspect of this. If your confidence in God's promises and his purposes in your life coming to pass are based upon your feelings of God's love for you, that's shaky ground. Not because God's love for you is weak or fickle, but because our feelings are easily swayed and manipulated. And so if we feel like, man, God, God doesn't love me as much, man, you're, you're, what you're going to find is if, if that's the foundation of your faith, that the way God's promises and principles or his purposes are working in your life are dependent upon you and, and feeling that love, your faith is going to ebb and flow, come and go, have ups and days, good days, bad days. Because at the end of the day, I know pastors shouldn't say stuff like this, but you know you're not all that lovable, right? <laughs> I mean... I mean, you're blessed if you have a family that loves you and some friends that love you. But beyond that, you kind of know you, you shouldn't really be loved by God if we're being really honest, right? Because you're you. So <laughs> you guys are such the greatest con People freak. Other pastors say, you said what to your congregation? Yeah, I told them they were lepers once. I called them whores, told them to pull their head out of their butts. And they still show up. Um, the point I'm getting at isn't that you guys aren't lovable, like there's nothing redeemable. I'm simply saying that if we are understanding the way God is going to relate with us and bring his promises and purposes to pass because of our character and our promises of faithfulness to him, we're going to feel that anxiety because we know we don't have the character and our promises of faithfulness are always broken. But if you recognize that the way God is going to work in your life is based on his character and his promises of faithfulness to you, then that's a wholly different foundation that you can build upon. Because if you realize how God works in your life, it isn't about your feeling, but God's name and his glory's on the line, he will never let his name and glory be besmirched. And so you can always count that God will always do what's best for you in your life. Not because you're lovable, but because he's loving. Not because it's based on your character and your promises, but because it's based on his character and his promises, and he will never let that be besmirched. I like that word. I'm trying to use that word multiple times this week. Besmirched. You get what I'm saying? You get what I'm saying? So when we think about hey man, God, are you going to make things work out in my life? And it's based on my feelings of God's love for me. I'm, my faith is going to be all over the place because the focus is my performance. 
did I do good this week? Because that determines whether or not God loves me and is going to do well in my life. But if I realize that it's based upon his glory and his purposes, the focus shifts from my performance to his promises and character. And as a result, my faith ends up stabilizing. Because I'm not so focused on what I'm doing or not doing. I start focusing on what he did and what he's doing. And that's a whole better foundation to build our lives upon. Now, here's the thing. You might be saying, and this is true because in our culture, we're constantly fed that it's our feelings and it's about us. And so our faith and our relationship with God, our feeling of acceptance with God kind of swings all over the place depending on our performance. So here's some simple things we can do. Number one, A, take it easy on yourself. What I mean by that is recognize we have lived in a culture awash telling us it's all about how we feel. And you guys know I'm in the feelings, right? Did a whole series on feelings. They're very important. But they have taken primacy in our culture and to the neglect of trust in the word of God, objectively, of of what God is doing, his character. Number two, begin to look at the truth that God wants to do great things, not just for you necessarily, but because he's a great God and his name needs to be proclaimed. I remember being 23 and coming across 2 Chronicles 16.9. I'll never forget it. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong through men and women who are wholly blameless before him. Now, the phrase blameless before him simply means committed. 2 Chronicles 69 is saying, look, God is looking for men and women to work powerfully through them to show his power. And all he needs is for you to say, I'm in. Can you say that? I think most of you can. Now you just say, I'm bad at this, God, but I'm in. That's good enough. I will be inconsistent and probably mess this up, but I am all in. That's enough. God says, that's all I need. As a matter of fact, the less you bring to the table, the less I have to work through to show my glory. And friends, maybe step one is just you going, yeah, I do do that. I do feel my acceptance with God is based on these feelings rather than the my character and my performance rather than his character and his promises. Maybe step one is just realizing that and saying, I've got to change that orientation. That's it. And that's enough because that's huge. A remnant by definition is not the whole thing, which is why we know Israel would not be rejected because their unbelief was not total. God's salvation may have been a remnant, but it was enough, and that's Paul's point here. Now, some of you, that you can take that encouragement and you run with it, and I'm glad because God is gracious. That's enough for you. But there are others of you that you still sit there going, yeah, but I'm a failure. And I've blown it, and God is done with me. I can barely believe he would use me, let alone love me. But I think Romans 11 is saying God is bigger than your failures and my failures. Amen. Friends, there's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. Let me say that again. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. If that describes you, you feeling like a failure before God, let's go to question number two. Is Israel beyond hope? We'll look at the ricochet of God's salvation. Let me read to you verses 11 and 12. Paul says, so I ask, did they, speaking of Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles 
so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What is Paul getting at here? In summary, this is what Paul's saying. If the answer to question number one is no, God hasn't rejected his people because Israel's belief is not total, that there's always going to be a remnant of God's salvation, and there he gave us the four evidence of that, then question number two is no as well because Israel's belief is not final. And there, Paul will give us two reasons. The first is this ricochet of God's salvation. Now, what, what is a ricochet? A ricochet is simply the rebounding of any projectile. And the reason I chose to use that word Maybe you noticed it. Did you all the back and forth in verses 11 and 12? The gospel goes to the Israelites or the Jews. They reject it. It goes to the Gentiles. The Israelites get jealous, so they respond effectively. It goes back to them, and then the Gentiles even more blessed. There's back and forth, back and forth. We'll look at that in a little bit. Actually, let me read it to you again and, and see if you can hear the kind of ricochet or the ping pong back and forth. Verse 11, so I asked, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? No. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has gone to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Back and forth, back and forth. Israel stumbles. Salvation comes to the Gentiles. The Jews get jealous of seeing the gospel fruit that's coming from the Gentile community. The implication is they respond in like kind of faith. And then Paul says, look, if they rejected the gospel and this is how great it turned out, can you imagine how amazing it's going to be when they accept the gospel? That's the ping pong back and forth. Verses 13 to 16, Paul's reiterating the same concept. And then in verses 17 to 24, he brings in this metaphor of an olive branch or olive tree and branches to kind of spin off, riff off even more on the concept, but then he provides a warning and an encouragement. Let's look at it one at a time. Let's look at all this bouncing back and forth in these 14 verses. The best way probably to see this, what Paul's talking about in verses 11 through 16, is in the book of Acts. So um, I want you to go to Acts 18. So keep your finger in Romans and go to Acts chapter 18, which is just a couple books to the back. Acts chapter 18 and verse 5. So as you're turning there, what we see in Paul's first missionary journey, which is recorded in Acts 13 and 14, in, in Poseidon, uh, Pisidian Antioch, we see the first occurrence of this cycle. So here's on the screen, Acts 13, 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. This cycle is repeated numerous times. We're just going to look at a couple of examples of that. The first one going to be, the second one here is Acts chapter 18. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. One last example. Go to Acts chapter 19, one page to the right. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, 
he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So what's going on is Paul's doing the same thing. Three months in the synagogue, and they became stubborn in unbelief, and they started to persuade others to stop listening to Paul. So he packed up his stuff and moved out of the synagogue and rented out some kind of building in the hall of Tyrannus to keep preaching the gospel to everyone would show up. This cycle is repeated all through the book of Acts. The Jews heard the gospel, and they rejected it, and salvation came to the Gentiles. The Jews look and see the fruit that that salvation is bearing, and in jealousy, they respond to the gospel message. My point simply here is, it was God's plan that the nation of Israel would reject the gospel so that the Gentiles could hear it. Now, let me show you where that is in Scripture. Matthew chapter 8. I want you to hear it from Jesus' own words. Matthew chapter 8. Look at verse 11. Matthew 8, verse 11. This is Jesus. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be a lot of people coming in from the east and the west, while the sons of the kingdom, they're going to be thrown out. Go down more in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? This should sound familiar if you've been here the last couple of weeks. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. I kind of wonder what would have happened had all Israel responded to the gospel message immediately. We saw the pattern because Israel rejected it. Paul and Silas and Timothy said, well, okay, if you're going to reject it, we're going to bring it to anybody who wants to hear it. And the Gentiles gobbled it up. But what would have happened if all Israel responded positively? Would the gospel have transcended the nation of Israel? Would the kingdom only be populated by children, physical children, descendants of Abraham? That's possible. We, we don't know. We, we don't see that happening. But I suspect God wanted more than the physical descendants of Abraham. God didn't just want the Jews. He wants them, but he wants the Europeans too. He wants the Scandinavians and the Polynesians and the Asians and the Africans and the Indians and everyone else. But in order for that to happen, Israel had to reject the gospel. So there's the ricochet. Well, here, here's another ricochet. We also see in the book of Acts how the Jews looked at what was happening in the church and became envious and jealous of them. If you're a note taker, write down Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 13, and Acts chapter 17. It literally says, filled with envy. I think one of the best pictures of this dynamic in Romans chapter 11 happening where the Jews looked at the gospel fruit being borne by the church and wanted it for themselves is Acts chapter 6. It's a common passage where we usually use it only to talk about where we got deacons from. But if you're familiar with Acts 6, the church is just growing by leaps and bounds, mostly with Gentiles, but a lot of the Jews too. And because of that, the, the widows were being, some of the widows were being ignored. They weren't getting the daily rations of food. And so they said, we got to take care of this. Uh, if they were a good Jew, they knew from Deuteronomy 15, that's their responsibility. For some reason, in the synagogue system, it wasn't happening. But in the church in Acts chapter 6, it got taken care of. 
And I always find what's interesting because in, very, in the next verse, in verse 7, uh, where am I in my notes here? In verse 7, it says this, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and this phrase, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In other words, the priests were watching this nascent church community of Jesus the Messiah taking care and loving each other, and they said, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And they became obedient to the faith, the ricochet. Israel rejects it. The Gentiles accept it. And there's flourishing fruit. Israel becomes jealous. And now some of them become believers as well. Ask yourself this question, friend. Are you helping to make Christ Community Church the kind of place that the outsider says, I want what they have? Are you helping make this place like that? Where somebody out there says, look, I, I may not agree with what they believe, but you cannot argue with the way they love and take care of each other. Is the gospel bearing that kind of fruit in your life to where the non-believing world will say, look, that, that Rick or, or that, that Bart or that, that Kyle, they're just nuts. But man, the way they live, I got to get in on that. Friends, after all, Jesus said that the world would know us, how? By how many Bible studies we attend? How, how cool our, our pastors are, right? No. How big our churches get? Our wonderful programs we run? No. John 13, 35, what did Jesus say? The world will know you're my disciples by what? Yeah, you love for one another. Friends, do you, you want to know the, what the greatest evangelistic tool out there is? A holy church, a gospel community where people are taking it seriously and it's bearing fruit in their lives and they're loving each other and they're pursuing holiness, they're fighting against sin, they're supporting each other, they're caring for each other, they're even correcting each other because they're trying to live holy lives set apart from the world. Is the gospel bearing such fruit in our lives that we are making the watching world, let alone the Jews, to say, well, they have riches in the gospel of Christ. That's what I want. Friends, my prayer is simply that that is so in every way at our church. And I'm grateful that that is what our church is known for, gospel community. That's what it should be about. That's what we see here. In verse 12 and 15, Paul uses this argument from the lesser to the greater. It basically says this, if you Gentiles have been blessed because Israel rejected the gospel, can you imagine what it would be like when they receive it? That's the argument from greater for lesser. And Paul concludes the second point with a warning and an encouragement by using the metaphor of an olive, brand, olive tree, natural and wild one is a warning to the Gentiles, and one is an encouragement to the Jews. Let's take a look at it one at a time. Verse 17, first the warning. But if some of the branches were broken off, speaking of unbelieving Israel, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, yeah, but branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. 
for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So the warning's pretty obvious, right? Verse 18, do not be arrogant, but fear. Why? Paul says it. He implies it. If God will reject hard-hearted Jews, he will have no problem rejecting cocky Gentiles. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, you just spent like five minutes, ten minutes talking about God won't reject his people. That's correct. He will never reject his people who live by faith, saved through grace, will never become arrogant and cocky. Only those who believe in their own self-righteousness and effort can become arrogant and cocky. Friends, if you understand the gospel, those, those words, arrogance and cocky, should not ever be associated with you. So God would never, God will always resist the proud for sure, but he'll never reject his people. And his people are never marked by arrogance and cockiness because we, we recognize, right? We recognize these truths. I'm unlovable, but he's loving. And that's what I base my relationship with him on. Paul's point is that there is no room for complacency, right? You may not be arrogant or cocky, but, but please, there is no room for complacency if you are a believer. You must always be fighting your pride as you lean into grace. Because it's very easy to get proud of the good stuff we do, can't it? I no longer do those things. Now I do these things. That's great. And we can get proud of that. We can't be complacent in fighting against our pride when we're people of grace. So that's the warning. But there's also the encouragement, verse 23. And even they, speaking of Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Obviously, the encouragement is written to the Jews, but there's application to us. If we are feeling smug about our relationship with God, Paul is saying there's no room for complacency. You have to fight against your pride consistently. If you are feeling like a failure before God, Paul says, look, there's no room for despair either. The thing is, though, you have to fight against is fear. Pride and fear always keep us from the gospel, don't they? Pride makes us think we're too good for the gospel or we're better than the gospel. Fear always makes us think we're not worthy of the gospel. And see, the gospel message, right, you guys always know there's always two ditches we can crash into. It's always in between. Always in between. Like Israel, if you are willing to turn from your unbelief, the way back to God is always open. The message that has been in Romans 9 through 11 is trust the promises of God. You can be forgiven. You can be made clean. You can turn back Excuse me, you can turn your back on your sin just like you once turned your back on God. You can move toward God just like at one time you moved away from God. Look at verse 22. Note then, Paul says, the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. How do we do that? How do we, how do we begin and continue in the kindness of God? And this goes right back to Romans chapter 5. It's in being in Christ. Not being in Adam, but being in Christ. Friend, if that's any of you, a simple prayer of faith is all you got to do. What did Romans 10, te 10 teach us? Confess, which is shorthand for repentance, right? 
Confess Christ as Lord, not you, not your idols, not your desire to be the perfect parent or the perfect employer or all those things, but Christ as Lord. So repentance and then faith. Believe. Believe in the gospel work that Christ has done. Repentance and faith. That's the key. That's the key. Then rinse and repeat. Your life is always repentance and faith. Martin Luther said the first of the 95 theses that he nailed on the church door at Wittenberg was all of life is repentance and faith, constantly confessing and believing. And finally, we know that Israel's unbelief is not final because what we see in verses 25 through 32, the rally of God's salvation. In, um, I guess, as I said, first hour, I didn't realize, but I, my eyes were bigger than my stomach, and so I'm not sure we can do all this. Uh, so I'm just going to point out two important phrases in these eight verses that I think carry the, the weight of what Paul is saying. Verse 26, number one, all Israel will be saved. Uh, that's an assuring thought. And I'm sure that the original recipients of this letter, that brought so much assurance to them. All Israel will be saved. Now, Believe it or not, there's six different ways to interpret that phrase. And part of the difficulty is it has to do with the words all and Israel. There's numerous ways to interpret all, right? And there's three different ways that I know of to interpret Israel and then combinations thereof. Okay, so I'm not going to get into all six. All I want you to hear is all Israel will be saved. And the second phrase, verse 29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Now, the reason I'm highlighting those two verses, and I know they're rife with interpretive challenges and they could mean many different things, but here's why I'm focusing on those two, is I think they highlight the point, the grand point that Paul wants us to walk away with. That somehow, in some way, with all our choices being made and yet God's plan from the foundations of time being set, two things are certain. What God determines is going to happen. And the decisions you do make matter. Again, how do we reconcile those tendencies, those tensions? I don't have the answer for you any more than I can tell you how light is both particles and waves simultaneously. It just is. Paul is confident, and so should we be, that regardless of how things might look, God's promises and his purposes will always come to pass for his people. They will always be fulfilled. How those promises, how those purposes get worked out in this broken, chaotic, and seemingly out-of-control world is a mystery to us. He even says it. I don't want you to be aware of this mystery. But it's not a mystery to him. Praise the Lord. He knows what he's doing. Friends, entire seminary careers and classes have been based on Romans 11, to say nothing about Romans 9, 10, and 11. And there's a deep dive we could take into it. But I think the thing we got to recognize is Paul's wanting to say, God does not reject his people. And wherever, whoever you might be, there is always hope to come back. And that's a message we need to hear constantly. I want to end this morning kind of where I want to do what I actually do next, what Paul does, and that's respond to what we've learned in the last three weeks, which is worship. And that's verses 33 to 36, and we'll do that next week. So I hope to see you then. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you, and man, Romans 11, there is so much more. Yet the thing that we need to walk away with is the reality that you do not reject your people. Father, the mystery of your plan intersecting and interacting with our real actual choices is beyond any of us. 
But we see clearly, as we've seen for three weeks, you te- the word teaches this. So, Father, instead of us trying to reconcile the mystery, help us to live in, a, in an attitude of worship in the midst of it. And trust you to sort out all the details. Father, I also pray that we would be a community like the early church, that people on the outside would look at us and say, I want what they have. Father, we pray that not only would we have strong apologetics in our arguments and the things we write and the books we publish, but our strongest apologetic would be the love we have for one another. Lord, we pray that you'd make it so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.